lifetimes of listening. When I saw that and I heard how she talked about music, that's when I knew, yep, I want to do that. I'm going to do my first ever, quote, tour this summer. And I, and I kind of, yeah, I, I fell in love with him through his music. Music in those ways became a great outlet, like, this makes sense. He played everything from Bach to Boogie Woogie. He really loved playing the keyboards. Lifetimes of Listening. Welcome to Lifetimes of Listening, a podcast that seeks to understand why music is so important in people's lives. Today, we're going to explore conversations with musicians. Some of you may recognize that this is the title of a wonderful independent podcast hosted by Leah Roseman. We are fortunate that she's our guest today. And if you don't know her podcast, please seek it out. It'll be linked in the show notes. She's an incredible musician, an incredible interviewer, and the way that she makes connections with musicians from around the world has a lesson in it for any listener. Dan, what's the most interesting conversation with a musician that you've had? Well, you know, Brian, in the, in the three years we've been gathering um, interviews and musical memories from our subjects that are in the archive now, the Musical Memory Archive, we've talked with lots of musicians. Uh, one that stands out for me was when, and it's a couple of years ago now, was when I interviewed a, a trumpeter in Tucson who's a professor of trumpet at the University of Arizona School of Music, Jason Carter. And uh, he told me the story of having been involved in uh, performing way back in the 90s, I think it was, with uh, Ray Charles on tour. And how he noticed um, uh, that uh, he noticed at one point during the six-month tour that he was with Ray Charles and his ensemble, that when Ray Charles played a solo with any given tune any night, he played exactly the same solo. Now, Jason's perception as a young 20-something hot up-and-coming jazz uh, improvisational trumpeters that he should he should make it up every night. It should be brand spanking new and creative and original in every way. And he learned from Ray Charles that what Ray really wanted was for Jason to play the solo exactly the same way every night. And that taught Jason a lot about the nature of performance, of improvisation, of keeping music and performance fresh, even though you were doing pretty much the same thing night after night. And I really... I just love that story. It has stayed with me for uh, for quite a while. How about you? What uh, what conversation with a musician uh, might you point to? I think I'm also really struck by um, by several of the um, several of the interviews that we've done that are in the archive. The the um, the one with David Harrington uh, I find really inspirational. It's the kind of one that I can go to, like you know, when you're having a a dry day and you need a little bit of uh, inspirational mo water, you know, in it's your life. It's inspiring, and, for uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, Thomas Gregg, a retired faculty uh, faculty member from the Berkeley Conservatory, um, uh, the way that he speaks about performance and what that means and, and how to connect to an audience and the, and the feeling of connecting with an audience when you really know that you have. Uh, these, these things just make music come alive for me, make me want to listen to music, make me want to practice music and everything. So I, th these would be some of mine. One other aspect of our conversations with musicians that has really struck me is that, you know, when I sit down with somebody who's been a musician for 20, 30, some case 40 years, people we've interviewed who have had careers decades long, I keep expecting that some of these full-time professional musicians who've been, who've been at it for decades may at some point in their careers become a little 
a little jaded, a little tired of it, a little, uh, oh boy, you know, it's been great, but yeah, music, not after night. And I haven't found that at all. One of the most wonderful things about interviewing musicians in general is that they stay almost to a person, inspired, motivated, moved by what they're doing, and feel very privileged to have been able to have a life in music. And that never seems to wear out for for people who are full-time committed musicians for decades and decades. It is still there for them. And that's just a wonderful, uh, that's a wonderful thing to, to be hearing from so many of the folks we've uh, spoken with. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that there's something about being in the present, being so connected to this thing that emotionally moves you that that musicians just energize themselves with it and and it keeps with them night after night decade after decade I, so many of the musicians we found are are really inspiring let's preview what we've got coming up on this episode we've got a very very special guest that we're really excited to be talking with her name is leah roseman she's a violinist and podcaster who lives in ottawa canada her podcast, which is titled Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman, uh, has been up and running since uh, 2021. It's available in both video and audio forms, all of which can be accessed through Leah's webpage. That's leahroseman.com. It's L-E-A-H-R-O-S-E-M-A-N.com. And we'll learn more about Leah Roseman's podcast, Conversations with Musicians, and share some of the musical memories uh, we've come up with the last couple of years with musicians in just a moment. Stay with us. That's coming up after this short break. Welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. I became a fan of your show, Conversations with Musicians, when you interviewed several people that played with people that I knew, uh, friends of mine, uh, where you interviewed them. And then you brought in a former graduate a teaching assistant. He was uh, now Dr. Emmanuel Abram. But before, before he graduated, I worked with him. I, I supervised him in the classroom, not in his violin teaching, but in the in the a classroom setting in a, in a general education course. And I just, I really fell in love with the way that you draw people out in conversation, and the way that you um, help musicians share of themselves. So I'm, I'm a big fan of your show. I, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about what, what led you to podcasting. Um, a little bit about yourself also as a, as a violinist and performer, and, and um, welcome. <laughs> well, thanks so much for inviting me. I, I really appreciate this. This is actually my first guest appearance on another podcast. So hey. it's a, um, so I'm not sure where you want me to start because you've asked me a few questions. Yes. <laughs> I think I'll start with the podcast. So I, frankly, had I known how much was involved and how much time it would take, and how it would basically take over my life. I, I'm not sure I would have started, but <laughs> I've. Um, it's not like I had ambitions to produce a 90-minute in-depth podcast every week that also comes out on video, and I publish the transcripts, and I'm working full-time as a performer. This was not the plan. 
we were in lockdown. This was just over two years ago, so May 2021. And it's funny how we misremember things, but I, I did start journaling a few years ago and I was rereading. I was like, oh yeah, this just kind of came to me. And I had this YouTube channel I started, which is a whole other story. I'll make it brief. When we first were locked down uh, due to the pandemic, March 2020, uh, we were suddenly teaching online, which I'd never done before, didn't have a good setup. And it was very frustrating trying to teach my students who are, um, at that time, were all teenagers. So I thought, well, I'll just make recordings for them. So at least they can hear how things are supposed to sound. And I felt a need, you know, we weren't rehearsing or playing concerts yet. And I just felt so like I wanted to help, you know, so I reached out um, in different ways to offer free masterclasses and free lessons. And I made some contacts with people who wouldn't have been able to afford lessons with me. And actually this one uh, man I started working with, I still work with to this day, um, had started learning violin by himself, you know, just using YouTube videos and was kind of isolated at the time. And we forged in this incredible bond. He lives in a city far away and I've never met him in person, but, you know, he needed help with some basic stuff. So I was thinking, okay, for that person, I'm going to make these recordings. And I just became rather obsessed. So I've actually recorded over a thousand violin videos, which not that, I mean, I have, you know, a few subscribers, but it's not like a huge channel considering all the work I put into it for all levels, like beginner up to advanced. And um, so I was recording every day. And honestly, like those, unfortunately, I have to say, the bulk of those recordings were just done on my phone, not even with an external mic, because I was just doing it. And I wasn't researching the same way I started my podcast, just recording on zoom, no editing, just putting it out there. But I think that instinct, I had to just go for it and create stuff has been helpful, because I've just gone for it. So because I had a YouTube channel and I was feeling isolated, I think we were in yet another lockdown. I thought, well, I know so many interesting musicians or some people I don't know personally, but I know of them. I should just talk to them and record these conversations. Wouldn't that be interesting? And I told my brother about it and he said, I'm not going to watch a video. You got to make it a podcast. And I said, well, I'm not so sure that's so easy. He said, well, figure it out. And of course it is very easy to do. <laughs> so thank you, my brother, David. And then so immediately they were put out as a podcast as well. And then I was just recording like a little conversation every week. They weren't quite as an in-depth, but I think out of a sense of insecurity, right from the beginning, I did as much research as I could for each guest. And if they hadn't done previous interviews, I would just use different ways of finding out about them. So in terms of how I draw people out, I, I, I feel like they know that I respect them. I figured stuff out. I, if they've done lots of interviews I or even one interview, I don't want it to be the same for them or, or anyone who's listened. And many of my guests are performers. So of course I wanna uh, listen to their music and there's certain topics I like to bring up because it's helpful to me. In fact, I feel like a lot of it's very therapeutic for me just in terms of dealing with a lot of issues as a performer and teacher. Um, so we can talk about maybe some of those issues later, but there's certain commonalities that definitely come up. I'm curious, Leah, how you, uh, how you select the guests for your show. Are you looking for musicians at certain stages in their careers or a commonality of musical experience with something in your life or you just pick them out of thin air. I'm, I'm really curious how you, how you arrive at the selection of people you interview on your podcast. Yeah. So it, at the beginning, it was people I knew. And so a lot of Canadians, I have to say, and probably more violinists, but 
I was already thinking I want to interview people who play. I think my third interview was with Patty Chan, the Arhu player, because I thought, isn't it, wouldn't it be interesting for people on my YouTube channel to see other bowed stringed instruments? Because there's so many all around the world. And I've really continued with that theme. Um, so as we speak, my uh, next episode, which will be coming out before this is released, is with um, a Mongolian horsehead fiddle player who also does, um, yeah, he also does the, the throat thing. It's amazing. Buku. So that, there we go. So that's kind of the origin of, of the violin going way back. So that was an interest I had right away. At this point, and certainly even a year ago, I get a lot of submissions from agents and musicians themselves. I'm constantly getting people asking me to interview them. And I, I do have to say no most of the time because I'm a planner. Because I work so much, you know, as, as, as a performer and teacher and everything, the only way I can do all this is to plan way, way ahead. So 2024 is completely planned out. Not that I've contacted everybody. <laughs> And some of them may say no, but I, of course I have, I follow th probably thousands of musicians. I, I'm always listening to music. And for example, somebody I sort of picked out of thin air, I uh, wanted to interview a lute player and I specifically wanted to find someone in um, Great Britain because I hadn't interviewed anyone who is British yet. And I thought they're an English speaking country. This is a worldwide podcast. I should try to find some British musicians. And I hadn't used Twitter yet, which is actually is great for podcast promotion, I think, because so many journalists and musicians are on Twitter. So although I hate it, <laughs> I won't advertise on <laughs> yes. Twitter. I'm using it and I'm making great connections. So Liz Pallet, who's just a phenomenal musician and wonderful person, she that's the main social media she uses. And so I found her and we made this connection and we had a lovely chat. And um, that's quite an episode of, of Renaissance music, if people are, are curious. Oh. Lots of different instruments. I can't um, wait to hear that. I'm uh, I'm a classical guitarist. So I, yes. that, uh, that will resonate. So what I'm hearing is that some, some of your choice of the guests you have is motivated by your own interest or curiosity. And then at least in a couple of cases, um, your interest in sharing with people who may not know about a certain instrument or a style of playing or a heritage or ethnomusicological perspective to get that out there, which is which really sounds fascinating to me. Uh, I do a bit of teaching in the Tucson area, mainly through uh, a thing called the uh, Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. And one of my great thrills is to simply share with people who know something about music, to share with them how much they really know about music that they don't know. And I think a show like yours has that opportunity. When you get musicians talking in depth, some of what they say resonates with people at their level of musicianship. And some will resonate very profoundly with the average listener who'll start learning things about music through hearing musicians and people like you uh, talk about music. That's a real uplift for them. So, uh, so you're doing a great thing with your podcast there. And uh, it's really wonderful to see, uh, see where it's going for you. Thanks, as are you. I've listened to several of your episodes and I really, it's definitely one of my favorite music podcasts mm. after well, my own. We're flattered. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, I like... No, I love how you use the stories and the the kind of um, focuses you have. What we do is certainly different, but it, when Brian reached out to me and said, I feel like we're podcast cousins, I, I, I agree. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's very cool. And yeah. certainly my motivation is to show the world the, the breadth and depth of a life in music. I often say that. Not everyone earns their living from music, but they play at a, quote, professional level. Uh, there's so many, it, it's funny, a, a podcast interview I did this week that'll be coming out. She said, I, she's talked with the mushy middle, what a lot of people listen to, probably because they don't know about other styles of music. And I, I don't mean to sound, I don't, maybe we should cut that out. 
I, no. I never want to sound elitist, you know. Well, middle of the road is a standard industry term yeah. for for this. Yeah. Um, but go ahead. Go ahead. I cut you off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I just, I have never listened to top 40 music myself. And I have always, it, I was thinking about the fact that we tend, I think one of you had pointed out in one of your episodes that we often listen to the music we're exposed to as teenagers. And we... And I was thinking, well, I was exposed to a lot of different music as a teenager, not because I was going to a lot of concerts with different music, but certainly the public radio we had in Canada at that time was great for that. And my parents' record collection wasn't huge, but it was diverse. And I was exposed to a certain amount of live music. So I think, yeah, I, you know, I even remember like I'd be in a restaurant, like we'd be in an Indian restaurant and I heard this incredible music. And then I went to the record store and looked for Indian music to buy because I thought, what an incredible style. I've never heard this. So I was seeking out different things to listen to when I was pretty young, I think, just out of curiosity. Is that is that how you found, how did you find the violin? Supadra? What? Or, or, how did you find the uh, violin? I apologize. I thought you meant the Carnatic violinist I'd interviewed. Um, the violin was presented to me as something my mother would like me to do, and I didn't know what it was. I was six. Uh, and then it just stuck. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think by the time I was eight, I knew I wanted to do this for my life. But I never okay. really thought there was another option. When I think about it, no one ever suggested, oh, you could be uh, anything else. It was just assumed. I think you sometimes people get a little pigeonholed. And I think a lot of the classical musicians I've talked to, because we start, most of us start very young, and there's a lot of... Um, discipline as children and you just kind of go on that path and it's a little bit straight and narrow and although I interview some fellow classical musicians it's not the focus because I don't think our stories are necessarily as interesting we might have interesting things to say but the stories are not as interesting as a lot of these other people I end up talking to who start much later in life maybe don't read music or have explore style that's not from their culture that they grew up in you know very different kinds of stories so, Leah, what we're going to ask you to do is uh, listen to a few uh, edited interviews that we've conducted with people about their musical memories as part of our Lifetimes of Listening um, program uh, effort. Uh, the first of these is a fellow named Eb Eberlein. His, his first name is actually Mark, I think, but he, he shared with me when I interviewed him that he was in a band and there were like six players named Mark, so everyone had to have a nickname, and his became Eb. <laughs> the first two letters of his last name. Anyway, Eb is a, a really accomplished uh, singer, songwriter, recording artist here in the Tucson area. And he shares with us in this, uh, I think it's two, two and a half minutes or so, his own perspective on his life in music and how he kind of became who he is and how that distinguishes him from other musicians he's worked with. So here's a story uh, about a musical memory from Eb Eberline. Well, I'm Eb Eberline, and it seems like Nearly all the players I know started out with their band in high school, but that's not me. I was given a solid body electric guitar by my best friend in high school, and I didn't have an amplifier, so I just put it on my leg and put my ear against the solid body so that I could feel the vibrations when I played it. But that didn't, fortunately, it didn't last very long. I got an acoustic guitar and, and went from there. I learned to play sitting on my pack on the side of the road with a little sign that said Denver or New Orleans or Tahoe or whatever it was, you know. I, I hitchhiked. 
that's where I learned to play. I, you know, when you're hitchhiking, there's plenty of time to sit there on the side of the road to get that riff figured out, you know. And so I'm really comfortable in a solo setting. Hey, you know, when you're a solo and you forget the lyric, you can sit there on G for a minute and, and, and noodle around. And then, oh, okay, there's the line. Now I can start singing it again. <laughs> so uh, you can't do that with the band. It requires much more discipline. And then you see my guitar in the soft case here. I carried that on my backpack from, you know, from the Appalachians to the Sierra Nevadas and everywhere in between. And I spent a lot of time up in the mountains hiking. Nowadays, I carry a little backpack or guitar because I'm old enough. I just have to keep it lighter on my back. But I still, I care. I'm going to Grand Canyon for a, a week-long trip in April. And I'll have my little backpacker guitar along. and I'm going to do my first ever, quote, tour this summer. I'm calling it the Continental Divide Tour. And I'm going to play campgrounds and the smallest towns I can find. I figure I have three days in each, each location and then travel days in between. Where day one, I figure out where I am. And day two, I do an audition. And day three, hopefully I have a gig. So, Leia, your thoughts on uh, those comments, that story from Eb Eberline? It's a really wonderful story. I, uh, I love that idea of, of finding a niche, you know, not doing what everyone else is doing. I've, I've certainly run across that. And what Eb talked about, the solo, uh, the freedom of being a solo artist. And I was thinking, you know, I've run into that as a performer when we get um, somebody playing with an orchestra for the first time and there's an arrangement that's been made of their song, but they're not used to having 60 people accompany them. So if they, you know, they take a wrong turn, it's very disconcerting as opposed to being with a small band. Anyway, I just, uh, I, I love that he, you know, just when he talked about beginning and he had this uh, solid body guitar and he couldn't even hear it. But that persistence and that interest and that drive was there. Something about the feeling of the vibrations that that even at a young age, the first he responded to that in a way that I think so many musicians do. Yeah, it was in in kind of a crude amateuristic way. I'll I'll stick my ear on my hard body on my solid body guitar that way I can hear. But it seems to have worked for him, and it was part of his evolution as a musician, and then getting an acoustic and being able to. Uh, practice in the normal way. Uh, I just, I love uh, listening to Eb's interview. It's been a couple, of, he was one of the earliest interviews we actually did for this project a couple, three years ago. And I love listening to it in part because just he has a great voice, right? He's got a great speaking voice. He has a great singing voice as well. And uh, he's just one of those local characters in Tucson who has a, a niche of his own in the local singer-songwriter uh, milieu here. And uh, it was a real, real treasure getting to know him a little bit. We, he was he was also one of the founders of the Tucson Folk Music Festival that is fairly s substantial. You know, it's not it's not Newport or, or Monterey or whatever, but it's but it's a big, uh, a fairly big deal. Brings in fairly big artists, and he is almost always uh, 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 for dozens and dozens of years has been able. You know. Ha to have a performance with a band or solo or, or whatever. So, yeah, the second uh, story we're going to have you listen to, the second musical memory here, Leah, is from a local uh, uh, musician I've gotten to know in the last couple of years. Her name is Alana Wiesing, and Alana's a, a professional percussionist, a timpanist, a 
uh, percussion adjunct professor at the uh, School of Music here at the University of Arizona. And uh, so I got to know her and got to interview her. And her story is remarkable because it's one of those stories about kind of the turning point in her life when she realized this is the direction she was going through an interaction with a, a renowned uh, percussionist. So here, uh, here we'll hear from Alana Wiesing. My name is Alana Wiesing. I am currently the principal timpanist of the Tucson Symphony Orchestra, as well as an instructor of percussion at the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. I also serve as the president and chair of the board of directors for a nonprofit called the Network for Diversity in Concert Percussion. Yeah, I, I did actually think of one, and it's the moment that I decided that I wanted to pursue a career in music and it wasn't just this thing that I knew I enjoyed but I wanted to have as a lifetime pursuit and as a career. I was attending the Eastern Music Festival in Greensboro, North Carolina. This was the summer after my freshman year of high school and it was my first experience being exposed to a day-to-day -day routine of going to rehearsals every day, having private lessons every week, being able to go to concerts at least three or four times a week, whether they be chamber music or full orchestra concerts, being able to also play in a lot of those concerts. One masterclass and one concert in particular really has stayed with me and I've come to realize over the years was the reason that I wanted to pursue music professionally because they brought in Evelyn Glennie, who is one of the most renowned solo percussionists in the world. She has toured and performed around the world. I was just so moved and so struck by how she was talking about the character of sound and the types of, of similes and metaphors that she was speaking in to evoke nature, to evoke animals, to evoke just different different things that I hadn't thought about in a way that created such clear, vivid imagery. And so when I went through and I played a passage, she asked me to go back and play again after she had described the quality of sound that she was looking for, I realized it was it was different and it was and it got better because of the type of feedback that she gave. And when I saw that and I heard how she talked about music, that's when I knew, yep, I want to do that. I want to be able to move people in that way because I was so incredibly moved. Yeah, it's something that I still think about and am motivated to continue to do and think about doing every single time that I play any note, whether I'm practicing or performing. Um, and it was just a really beautiful experience that started my journey towards where I am now and where I hope to continue to grow in the future. So that's Alana's musical memory. Um, Leah, any thoughts on that? Any responses to what she had to share with yeah, us? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, when Alana was just talking about, you know, this intensive program, I think those are so important, these summer programs. It just can, it, it shows students what a life will look, could, could look like for them as opposed to their usual day to day. But Evelyn Glennie, I had an opportunity to be on stage with her a couple of times. It's been a number of years, but you don't forget that. It's, I don't know if you've been able to see her live. I have, yes. She, she's, uh, I've been connected off and on with the percussion studio at the University of Arizona for the last 20, 
going on 23 years, and she came as a guest artist and spent four or five days doing clinics and so forth. Just an amazing experience to see her coaching people, mentoring people, uh, workshopping, and then in performance with the Tucson Symphony as well. So you're right, she's a remarkable artist, and it's not surprising she had this kind of an effect on a young uh, artist named Alana Wiesing, who got exposed to her at that music camp. Yeah. And perhaps not all your listeners will know that Evelyn is deaf. She she doesn't hear. It's all through vibrations. Correct. And she's really one of the <laughs> foremost percussion soloists in the world, without a doubt. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. You and I, Dan, have spoken about Evelyn. I didn't know she was deaf. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty remote. She, so she performs barefoot. In order to be more connected with vibrations, she lip reads. She, it's a lot going on there that makes it possible for her to be who she is. Wow! But uh, I, any, any other thoughts, uh, Leia, on on Alana's story or the or the pivotal nature of that experience? Did you have a, Did you have a similar experience, or have you spoken with other musical artists who have had such particular moments in their lives when when things turned a certain direction? I think we we all have. Um, I was thinking about this before we spoke today, even. I even wrote notes, but I have too, far too many things written down. I I have so many, you know, little moments, but I was thinking, I remember my brother putting on um, The Art of the Fugue with Glenn Gould uh, when I was quite young on the, on the stereo speaker. In fact, I have my parents' remarkable speakers downstairs to listen to records. And he showed me how you could listen to the different parts simultaneously. Of course, we can't really, but, you know, there's that way we listen uh, to this complex music. And it was kind of the first time I had really done that kind of deep listening as a child. And it kind of blew my mind, especially having even played a melodic instrument and pretty simple stuff to that point. So I remember that experience. Um, and another listening, ex it's interesting, these were more listening than playing experiences. When I switched teachers, um, I was 14, I think. I, I studied with quite a well-known teacher. I used to travel to another city. And he said, you know, you need to develop your sound. You need to develop your vibrato. I want you to order, because in those, at that point, you know, of course, we're buying records and you'd have to like special order things. It's hard for people now to realize. Order some records, uh, Fritz Kreiser made of his own rec recordings. and. And I want you to listen to that sound and I want you to try to imitate it because at a certain point, imitation is good. And when I was listening to a violin, I think for the first time in that way, like, how does he do that? How could I try to sound like that? It was actually quite transformative. I probably have about 30 other different memories, but those ones kind of came to mind in terms of, I think, deep listening that just because we listen, but we listen on different levels and in different ways and for different purposes. I, I also like how in your story, Leah, the, in both cases, it was a mentor or a, you know, sibling, a mentor, somebody that, that sort of encouraged you sort of said, Hey, there is this other way of thinking about and listening and, and experiencing this. And, and that opened up something for you. And I liked in, in Alana's story, the, uh, the idea that, you know, she played drums, and then and then she heard a percussionist and, and experienced you know experienced that and and became a lifelong percussionist at that point. I, I, I love that that a that an, that a sometimes somebody outside of you can just either see inside you or say something that just flips a switch. And ah, uh, there's so many, but I was thinking which ones would be interesting. Uh, like, okay, this harmonica player, Brendan Power, originally from New Zealand, who lives in England, 
So he was, I forget exactly how old, maybe 20. He was in like first or second year university studying, I can't even remember, philosophy, I think. Never played a musical instrument in his life, had no background. Went to a concert of Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Left the concert, thought, well, that's what I need to do. Dropped everything, bought a harmonica, self-taught very shortly after that, started taking it apart, figuring out how it worked so he could change it. And now he's the foremost in innovator of harmonicas. He's always building new harmonicas. Um, and this has been his whole life. And he's performed with Sting. He's done all this cool stuff. He, uh, yeah, he's, he's quite, a, quite a guy. And it just came from that kernel, like this one concert and wanting to make that sound. There's there's so much more to say, but let's uh, let's move on. I, I, we have an, one more story, and uh, and then maybe we can sum up and see if we can find some commonalities and things. But I'd like to play a story for you by Daniel Rivera, and he was a student of mine. Um, is a um, was intensely into music in high school, less so in college. He's not a music major, um, but he spoke about something that it that I think we've all experienced and I'm curious to know if this is something that you've heard in your conversations. So uh, let me play for you, Daniel Rivera. Hello, my name is Daniel Rivera and I am a second year student at the U of A. When I had first started playing jazz, when I first started playing bass, upright bass, they would tell me play this note on this beat. And now I do understand like why. As I kept going on, playing more bass, understanding it more, I started to understand that like it's like this like thing, this like clamp that holds the jazz band together. It's like the drummer and the bass are the two that keep it together. The drummer keeps it in time and the bass is keeping the drummer in time, but also like the steady metronome going on in the background. I think musical experiences are important due to the fact that it gives us it gives us life. It's like a little, it's like a little potion, a little sound that gives us life. And I think that's why musical experiences are important. It leads to becoming closer with people, meeting new people, having great times with people. There might be, music can lead to a lot of different things. There might be times where you play with somebody that doesn't even speak the same language as you, but you guys share the language of music and you guys are able to play together because you know what is going on or on like or on top of that you know what to do and the other person understands as well and you guys may not say a word to each other because you can't understand each other but when you guys are playing musically together and it makes sense and it flows perfectly well you guys understand each other to a certain point one of the first times i got to perform one of the f like first few times i got to perform with the jazz band i don't remember anything from it it was kind of like this moment where I went blank. It started at, let's say, 6 o'clock, and then at 6.30, I remember about, like, two minutes from that whole performance. And I think the reason why I don't remember it so much is because I got lost inside of it. Sometimes it didn't feel real. Sometimes it didn't seem like I had already played. I had gotten lost, so lost inside the music that I actually messed up a few times. I'd actually messed up a few times to cop back on. Those are the two minutes where I remember the most. But it was such of like, I remember at the end when I like regained and like got my memory back about that, this like high energy music playing. They say usually like jazz musicians are going to start sweating through their shirts because of how 
how mad, uh, how much are they playing or how fast, whatever it may be. And you could tell that was the one of the first times where I had seen that was true because of how sweaty my shirt was. Yeah, there's a lot in there, uh, what Daniel was talking about. I love what he said about the connections with people and how music, he said, gives us life. And I really think that's why music, it's the best language humans have. I've certainly talked to so many people who uh, connected uh, without being able to speak the same spoken language. Um, so we could talk about that. But, uh, you know, he also talked about flow at the end. And I think that's what we're always chasing, all performers. It's that feeling of losing yourself in the moment. And as a performer, you know, it, sometimes it happens. And I think it's a bit of a continuum. You know, sometimes you're completely 100% in flow and other times you're really not. And those are the worst feelings. And then there's the in and out. I remember um, one chamber music concert I played with uh, Pinko Zuckerman, the great uh, violin soloist. He was our music director for 20 years. And when he was first here, I got to play Brahms G major sextet with him, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of chamber music. And just like, I remember that concert, the joy of it, but I couldn't remember any moments in just that feeling of being, and it was Lynn Harrell was the other cellist with Amanda. It was just like this whole thing it was very intense and we barely rehearsed you know i think we might have played it once or twice and just went on stage and you had to be in that flow you know just picking up what was going on and um i, I mean i've had lots of great experiences it's just one that that came to my mind of that yeah you, you couldn't say what happened but you know it was a great experience you, so when you speak to other musicians have you had other people remember the vividness of that dropping into the flow state and, and, and being so present and in the moment? For sure, yeah. And I speak to a lot of improvisers, so I think that's a big thing with improvisation. You know, I talked to um, one of my recent uh, episodes, it was with uh, the musicologist Verna Gillis, who went around the world recording people all over. And, you know, she's, she talks about that, that feeling of being in the music. And it's interesting because at the very beginning of that episode, she had just been to this wonderful concert the night before and she just you know starts talking about her experience as an audience member in great detail and it's one of the best descriptions i've ever heard of someone describing how incredible a concert was and how it made them feel so it works both ways right performers and listeners alike we get that feeling i i find myself uh, and i was listening to daniel's interview there daniel's story for the first time brian had not played it for me previously for me, it evoked a memory of a performance I was involved in, this is probably 18 years ago, where I had a very exposed, very brief part on glockenspiel with a large ensemble, made of, actually might have been a chorus, a choral ensemble, and I just kind of lost consciousness as my little exposed two or three bars approached, and my perception was I made a complete mess of this and was worried sick about it, and the next day went on bended knee to the conductor saying, I'm so sorry about what happened last night. And he said, oh, you know, everything was fine. <laughs> but, but by my perception, I had become so lost in what was going on that I felt as though I lost consciousness that I completely made a mess of this. And he, and he was very forgiving. And I've always felt that music has that opportunity, that capability of giving us forgiveness too, that it's, it's not about us, it's about the music. If it's not perfect every time, that's okay. But anyway, that was my just hearing Daniel's story for the first time is that getting lost in music can go a number of different ways. And I've had experiences with that as well. Well, performance anxiety is, is a huge, huge issue. And it's one of the things that I always <laughs> sure. talk to. And I've talked to a couple of experts about that as well, like Madeline Bruiser, because it's huge for me. And I'm always, um, now I'm listening to auditions. I'm coaching people doing orchestral auditions, which is one of the most 
stressful kind of performances people have to do where you have three minutes to prove yourself. <laughs> but yeah, I know that kind of blank, the negative blanking out you're talking about for sure. We've all been there. All, all three of these interviews were, were fairly easy to conduct. Uh, I, I mean, I, uh, two, two were conducted by Dan, but I, they were um, people that were very comfortable talking about themselves. But I, uh, I have this theory that I will just put on the table for, for the two of you to respond to, and it leads to a question. The theory is that many performing musicians are professional extroverts, but, but more introverted you know that that uh, I so I like I, I get paid to be on stage, <laughs> I, I, and it's not it's not you know it, it like there is some crazy ego need, but it's also I I get charged by having a conversation with two people that are in you know fun to speak with as we are now. I, I smaller smaller things, introverted sort of things, fill my tanks, but but I'm a professional extrovert. Um, I can, you know, go up and give a lecture or, or whatever. And, and I, I wonder if, if that, I, I've heard many other choral conductors and many other musicians say something like that. I'm, I'm wondering if that, and, and what made me think of that is um, having just recently taken Daniel's longer interview and brought it into something short, I, I realized it was, took a while for him to open up. The last thing that he said was this moment of diving into this performance. And that was... You know, and so it was. It was sort of like the he he was hesitant. He was hesitant. He got comfortable, and he let himself in to just really tell this really uh, powerful story. So I I, I wonder uh, about that. What what your thoughts? <laughs> I would agree completely that I think most musicians are introverts, except for the singers. I think singers tend to be more extroverted. Maybe there is I'm a wrong, quality. But that's my impression. There is there is a quality with performing. And the performance is a part of your body making the sound. I think that's that maybe uh, it's connected with what you're saying. That I've always thought myself, it takes great courage to open up your, your mouth and let the sound come from there, as opposed to something you can manipulate externally. There's a, there's a qualitative difference to that performance experience, I'm sure, and the and the mindset that it takes to be really good at it. Yeah. But in terms of the skill, like the life yeah. skill to be alone, you know, just playing your instrument. <clears throat> for hours and hours you have to be have that happiness to be alone you know to a certain extent there was a second part to your question brian i'm trying to remember there was well, i uh, it's about opening up opening up relatively yes. introverted people so if it, you've had many yeah. conversations with musicians if they are as i pre assume many of them are introverted by nature how do you get them to open up and, and get into so, so we just heard uh, Daniel open up, share this really powerful story that was very seminal to his experience of music, and and he had to get there slowly. Um, how how does that happen with you in your conversations with musicians? You know, now that I'm more experienced, I've been doing this for over two years. I really I can feel it's a palpable difference when people start to open up and feel more comfortable, and it could take forty five minutes easily. And because I have longer, long form conversations, so I don't have a episode length, you know, most of my episodes are about 90 minutes, but it's not like I have a strict limit on it. And certainly we often talk longer than we include, but I think that openness can help as opposed to saying, oh, we're out of time, you know, if people know that we have this time. And in terms of getting people to open up, I ask, it's interesting, I listen to a lot of interviews because to prepare. 
and I'm very critical of these other interviews, I have to say, because very often people don't ask follow-up questions. People say very interesting things, and then no one asks them to elaborate, but that's where you get a lot of this, the interesting insights. And I think, you know, it's, we talked about mentorship earlier. It's one of those things I always like to ask about because people really like to honor their mentors. They might have been a music teacher or somebody else in their life, and maybe they have passed and they want to, you know, remember them. So I often ask about mentors and there's wonderful stories and insights that come out of that. So if I don't know that much about someone, I might just look at their bio and where they study, who they study with. And I'll ask them, oh, do you want to talk about so-and-so? And sometimes they don't. And usually they do. Well, I think we're, uh, we're, we're really delighted to have had this time with you to talk this morning. Uh, Leah Roseman, violinist, podcaster uh, from Ottawa, Canada. And just a reminder to our listeners that her uh, podcast is Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. And uh, it's really been a delight talking with you this morning for uh, our podcast, Lifetimes of Listening. Leah, thanks so much for being with us today. Dan and Brian, thanks so much for inviting me. I really uh, enjoyed uh, listening to the conversations uh, that you had with people and talking to you as well. subscribe to this uh, podcast on your favorite podcast app. And we hope you'll also consider participating with our project by uh, telling us your story, by sharing with us a musical memory of your own. We're extremely grateful for the more than 160 people who have already recorded a story for the Arizona Musical Memory Archive. It's allowing us to better understand the ways that people value music. If you haven't visited our website yet at musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu, please do so. And there you'll find full-length interviews of the ones that we have used to, in our episode today. And you can also, on the website, submit a musical memory of your own as, if you like, a sound file, an essay, a poem, even an illustration of some sort. Or if you like, suggest someone you know who'd like to share their musical memory with us. So take a look at Musical Memories dot music dot arizona dot edu that's lifetimes of listening the arizona musical memory podcast i'm dan cruz and i'm brian moon thanks for listening the executive producer of lifetimes of listening the arizona musical memory podcast is brian moon the program is produced and edited by dan cruz the Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. <laughs>